the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy, and he's here to say good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is, of course, a Wednesday, the sixth day of... Sixth, is that right, Jarrell? Double check me on that, sixth, just to make sure. Sixth day of September. Trust you're having a great week so far. What a weird weather week we've had. Isn't it ironic? I don't know about in your neck of the woods, but along the peninsula over the weekend, we had record highs, as I think we all experienced across the Bay Area, 107 degrees where I'm at. And then by Sunday afternoon, we had drizzle. But, of course, if the weather is not enough on the West Coast, look at what they're experiencing on the East Coast, from the hurricane down, of course, in Texas to now Hurricane Irma that is picking up momentum. Sustained winds of over 185 miles an hour. I I, I can't even imagine it. We are going to take you to Florida. Bill Bunkley, who is a radio talk show host with one of our sister stations in our uh, cluster of stations located in uh, the greater Tampa, Sarasota area, will be uh, live with us later on in this hour to give us an update as to uh, not only conditions out there, but what they are anticipating as what is shaping up to be a Category 5 hurricane. Pretty incredible stuff. All right, speaking of Big storms. There is another one brewing, this one even further east in North Korea. We have been watching over the many months now the rhetoric not only increasing coming out of Pyongyang, but then, too, increasing number of ballistic missile tests. The latest threat from North Korea, the possibility of an electromagnetic attack. Correspondent Bill Zamfir has more information. Bill? North Korea's state news agency says the country has the ability to target the U.S. with a so-called electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, attack. Theoretically, such an attack could fry power grids across the country with catastrophic consequences. Weapons experts say an EMP could be generated by detonating a hydrogen bomb high in the atmosphere over the United States. Such an incident could leave much of the U.S. in the dark for up to a year. Bill Zimfer, NBC News Radio. What is amazing about all of this is we thought we had left talk about nuclear war behind when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War was finally over with. Ironically, though, much of the rhetoric and the concern might equal that of even October of 1962. One of the many questions, in addition to how do we address this, is how do we get in this mess in the first place? With some insights, we're joined by Herb London. Herb is the president of the London Center for Policy Research. He also serves as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and was once the president of the Hudson Institute. He's author of a newly released book called Leading from Behind, the Obama Doctrine and the U.S. Retreat from International Affairs. Herb, is always a delight to have you on the program. I guess part of this is the result of what? Eight years or more of sustained so-called 
passive diplomacy when it comes to dealing with Pyongyang? Well, passive diplomacy is one way of putting it. Obviously, we've had several administrations that decided to so-called kick the can down the road, a metaphor I very much dislike. But now there is no can and there is no road. So it is a very different set of conditions. Up until now, the intelligence community argued that you did not have to worry about a North Korean nuclear weapon until 2022. That was the year that the intelligence community argued. And so it was believed that we didn't have to do anything in the short term. But now it is very obvious that they do have the capability of reaching the, uh, the North American continent, possibly go as far east as Chicago, and they do have a hydrogen bomb, probably miniaturized, so that it could be installed on an IBM, an ICBM. So I think that there are some very real issues that have to be uh, tackled by the Trump administration that were ignored by his predecessors. And, of course, the idea of waiting until something got to a serious condition, such as 2022, obviously the clock is ticking much faster than what we realize. And I suppose, too, here, isn't it true, Herb, that there's been a big dose of kind of sticking our proverbial collective heads in the sand, not thinking that um, Pyongyang would ever potentially do something crazy? I heard a commentator on one of the television networks the other day say, well, listen, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Pyongyang doesn't want war with the United States any more than Washington, D.C. wants war with North Korea. I mean, they, they, they're they not bent on self-destruction. They just want a little bit of attention. And then I got to thinking, well, wait a minute, though. History is littered with madmen that crave war. In the 20th century, we had the likes of Hitler, Mussolini, Hirohito, and certainly even, even Kim himself, his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, started the war against the South in 1950. Well, one of the things that, of course, is true is that the erratic qualities associated with Kim Jong-un make it very difficult to know how to deal with it. Look, you've heard Susan Rice talk about deterrence. She said, well, so they have nuclear weapons, we can deter them. But how do you deter someone who's irrational? I mean, if, in fact, both sides, both negotiating partners or enemies understand there's a rational dimension to what's happening. In the Cold War, for example, the Russians might say, you know what, you give up your missiles in Turkey. Uh, the timing may be off, but you give up your missiles in Turkey, we'll give up our missiles in Cuba. And that is a kind of mutually assured understanding. And that understanding led to a motive for envy. Now we have no possibility of doing that because you do not understand the motivations behind this character. That is the real problem. A nuclear weapon in the hands of the St. Francis is not a weapon. But a nuclear weapon in the hands of someone as erratic as Kim Jong-un is a very dangerous weapon. That's the problem we face. Do we have any understanding from either a diplomatic or intelligence standpoint as to what exactly, what point he's trying to prove here or what his potential end game is. I mean, certainly bolstering his position within his country, uh, sending a large and very loud message to any potential threats from within that he's serious. He's already executed his own uncle to prove the point. But, but what at the end of the day, if you could hazard a guess, do you think he's trying to prove here by all of these repeated nuclear tests? This is now the sixth no, such test in a short prove, period of time. Yeah. Excuse me for interrupting. What he's trying to prove is that he can secure something for his country when, in fact, there is nothing in North Korea that he would want. They do not produce anything. They do not have any farm products that emerge from the country. Everything has to be imported. The Chinese represent 80, 90 percent 
of all of the commerce between the two nations. They provide all of the food and fuel for North Korea. So what he is saying is, I can secure something from the West in the form of extortion by engaging in these tests. And if you listen to the Russians and the Chinese today, they are saying we need a freeze-freeze. What the freeze-freeze means is that the North Koreans will freeze all testing in the future. And in return, the West will give up its so-called militaristic rhetoric and start to provide certain food and fuel activities for North Korea. Now, again, would this happen under normal circumstances? Of course not. So what he is engaged in is an extortion racket. And he learned from his grandfather and his father that has, this is how you intimidate the West. And at the end of the day, essentially then blackmailing the West into propping up his own regime. Exactly. This is the way he props up his regime, and it is the way in which North Korea has a place on the world stage. And ironically, as much as it's often in the press referred to as the Hermit Kingdom, and you get the sense that they all kind of stand alone by themselves, no allies, and yet we know that there's a long history of China supporting the DPRK. We know that certainly after the last round of sanctions, oddly and mysteriously, trade between China and the DPRK increased by 40%. And I've got to wonder if Russia, when Putin says things as he did today, that, quote, further sanctions on North Korea are, quote, useless and ineffective a road to nowhere, that seems to me more like somebody that's acting as an ally of North Korea than somebody who's necessarily trying to get North Korea to back down from its nuclear ambitions. Exactly, exactly. And look, what the Russians are intent on doing is, of course, humiliating the United States. This is also true with China's goal. Why does China continue to adhere to this alliance with North Korea? Largely because, if I again can speak metaphorically, They've got this beast in the cage. They are challenged. They are being challenged by the United. They're challenging the United States for hegemony in the Pacific Basin. And what they're saying is, we can pull out this beast at any time. This can make your life very, very uncomfortable. And let me tell you, uh, USA, you think you have complete control over Asian affairs. We have this very instrument, interesting instrument at our disposal, which we will use whenever we choose to do so. So the advantage of having North Korea is a distinct, distinct opportunity for the Chinese. We've got to convince the Chinese that that advantage is more of a disadvantage. So far, we have been unable to do so. So, Herb, in the past on this program, when I have referred to North Korea as China's lapdog, is that fairly accurate? I think that is accurate. I think that's exactly accurate. Because, again, the Chinese, if they wanted to turn off the spigot, that is, all of the, the coal and and all of the fuel and all of the, the food that's provided for North Korea, they could do so. They could paralyze that nation in an instant, but they've chosen not to do so. And again, the advantages of having North Korea in that camp simply outweigh the disadvantages. Well, certainly is a huge aid in terms of helping to keep the United States uh, off kilter and off our game and keeping us uh, conveniently distracted, not only the United States, but certainly all of our allies in the region as well. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Herb London. He is the president of the London Center for Policy Research, also serves as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, former president of the Hudson Institute, and the author of a brand new book called Leading from Behind, the 
the Obama Doctrine and the U.S. Retreat from International Affairs. And as we're finding out, the old adage of America first or the sense of isolationism, as ineffective as it was in the years leading up to World War II in the late 1930s and proved to be ultimately disastrous, one might suggest that the same mindset that had been sort of the watchword of the last administration has set up yet another potentially disastrous scenario. This time, though, maybe even worse, because a miscalculation on either side could be devastating to the entire planet. We'll talk about that next as our conversation with Herb London continues on this edition of Lifeline. 518 on the clock. Let's pause and get you a quick update on traffic. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael, how we doing out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Best-selling author Herb London, his latest book, Leading from Behind, The Obama Doctrine and the U.S. Retreat from International Affairs. Herb is the president of the London Center for Policy Research. We are talking about the latest concerns over the sixth and most powerful hydrogen bomb test that ultimately over the weekend triggered a 6.3 magnitude earthquake. Serious stuff going on. And, of course, since Monday, we've seen some movement. Apparently, the DPRK has now relocated an ICBM launcher to its west coast. How much of this is just simple staging? How much of this may be a potential real threat that we have to consider as a real threat? Well, therein, I guess, lies the challenge that uh, the diplomatic corps is trying to deal with and understand. The most recent test, Herb, as you know, was characterized by the DPRK UN ambassador as a gift package addressed directly to the United States. So clearly the saber rattling, while some of it impacts neighbors in the area like South Korea and Japan, clearly the message that they most strongly wish to communicate is to the United States. And I guess the the big concern here, the big question is, in the messages that they send, the messages that we send in return, engaging in war games with South Korea, et cetera, et cetera, isn't it true that a simple miscalculation on either side could ultimately have devastating results globally? Well, without any question, look, a miscalculation is one of those things that has to be seriously entertained. It's one of the reasons why, as I indicated to you before, this becomes such a dangerous scenario, in large part because you're dealing with someone who is so erratic. Uh, I think that there is no doubt that our diplomatic corps is working overtime. The United States certainly does not want to go to war. It is the last and the worst option. But as the president has indicated, this is the default position. We have to leave the war option on the table. And there is no doubt we're sending a message to the North Koreans about that. We can eliminate 25 million people off the face of the earth. We can destroy North Korea so it looks a little bit like Tunis after the, war, the, the Punic Wars. Uh, again, there is no doubt that this country has, our country, has the capability of doing that. But we do not want to be brought to that point. That's one of the reasons why I'm somewhat, somewhat encouraged by the so-called freeze-freeze. Now, it is ridiculous to think of the moral equivalence between the United States and North Korea. But as long as there's a willingness on the part of the Chinese to impose on North Korea a freeze on all tests, that's a step in the very right direction. Now, of course, 
attempting to freeze the United States as a reciprocal gesture, saying we're not going to engage in any military activity, is absurd on every level. It's absurd. And Nikki Haley made that clear today. But there is no doubt that at least the first part of the calculation does make some sense. It would serve a very important message to the world if Kim Jong-un says we will freeze all testing. The other, the other interesting part of this is what do they get for doing so? I don't know the answer to that, and there may have to be some concession, maybe a concession like, well, South Korea and North Korea will remain separate. We're not going to unify the peninsula. That's possible. But again, anything beyond that is, of course, rather problematic. Ken, is there a way to negotiate a freeze-freeze and one that comes with some sense of being able to verify? Because let's face it, it's one thing for them to say, okay, we're going to stand down, we'll no longer rattle the sabers, but there could be ongoing nuclear development taking place uh, beyond our reach or, uh, you know, uh, in, in secret, as we've seen take place in countries like Iran, where they say we're behaving ourselves, but in reality we're not. How do we get confirmation of that? Well, again, you, you've raised the right point. Look, the, uh, the North Koreans, for at least 25 years, have been building underground tunnels. They've got mobile launchers, which, of course, move on tracks in the underground. Even if you were to fire tomahawks, you don't know whether you will be able to reach the appropriate targets. So uh, there are a lot of question marks. Yes, the only way in which a freeze works is if verification is included, a very serious verification regimen. The United States would have to negotiate that. As you've indicated, Herb, um, China has this very convenient lapdog, in my words, that can become problematic and tiresome and irksome for the United States. There is one thing, though, that the United States has in turn that can potentially deal with North Korea, and that is China itself. And that is not through diplomacy, but rather through trade. Now, I'm sure it would upset any banker, any executive on Wall Street to even suggest this, but is there any realm of possibility of being able to play the trade card with China and basically say to China, look, we're your number one trade partner. All that money that you're using to build those skyscrapers, that's all coming out of the United States for the most part. If you don't control your dog, we're going to take our business elsewhere. Is that a viable alternative here? I think it's clearly an alternative. Look, the Trump administration does not want to exercise that option. It's been discussed that we will not trade with any country that engages in trade with North Korea. Obviously, that's designed for China. It's also true that all of the banks in Asia deal in dollar-denominated funding. As a consequence, any deal with North Korea is a deal in dollars. We can freeze those banks, all of those transactions. Again, there is reluctance to do so. But it strikes me, if it comes down to national security versus the welfare of those on Wall Street, I mean, it's an easy choice. The national security of the United States comes first. Here is the final and I think perhaps $64,000 question. And your book goes a long way toward helping to answer this, I believe. And that is, is doing nothing an option here at all? Is just sort of laying back and not responding to the rhetoric, essentially ignoring what Pyongyang says and does? Is that an option or have we long since passed that? The uh, benevolence neglect that accompanied Obama's foreign policy is not possible at this time. If you said to me, 
well, we have another administration that can kick the can down the road, to use this rather unfortunate metaphor, as I've suggested. You have to realize there's no road and there's no can. Everything that we worried about has now come to pass. The North Koreans have the capacity to reach North America. They can reach Alaska very easily, 3,700 miles away, can reach Alaska. And so we are now in a rather precarious position. Here is a country with an irrational leader that is quite capable of causing enormous harm in the United States with the potential death of millions. The President of the United States, as his responsibility of Commander-in-Chief, has to provide for our national security. He can no longer avert his days. He's got to act. And that's one of the reasons why this is very different from the situation that existed with Mr. Trump's predecessors. Well, I guess this is one of those scenarios where uh, time, certainly over the short term, will tell. And in the meanwhile, all of us have good cause to be literally sitting on the edges of our seats. And if you're not getting a very good sleep tonight, there's a good reason why. I might suggest, however, not to lay all the blame at the foot of the current occupant of 1600 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but rather the do-nothingness approach over the last eight years that has helped take a situation that was not good to begin with and multiply it profoundly multiple times over. Herb London, president of the London Center for Policy Research. You can get more information on the web at londoncenter.org, londoncenter.org. Want to learn more about the impact of leading from behind the Obama doctrine and the U.S. retreat from international affairs, the book available through the London Center's website, again, at londoncenter.org. That's londoncenter.org. And our thanks to Herb London for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. 5.30 exactly. Let's swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center and get you the latest on your Wednesday ride home with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The National Weather Service has now issued another update pertaining to the status of Hurricane Irma. The uh, immediate advisory is that uh, the Category 5 hurricane, its eye making its way just north of Puerto Rico by approximately 50 miles. Irma continues to be a dangerous Category 5 storm, packing winds of 185 miles an hour, especially right near the center of the storm, which is currently passing through portions of the Virgin Islands. It will stay a very strong hurricane, passing just north of Puerto Rico later today and tonight, and then tracking off towards the southern Bahamas by later on this week. We're still not sure exactly where it will or possibly make landfall, but current projections take it pretty much close to Miami during Sunday morning and then heading up the east coast of Florida thereafter. Certainly as Texas continues to reel in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, the amount of sheer force being mustered by Irma is making Hurricane Harvey potentially look like child's play. There are well over 27 million people that occupy the state of Florida. They have great cause for concern. Let's get a look at some of the preparation efforts underway. We had two Florida. Bill Bunkley joins us. Bill is the host of The Bill Bunkley Show. Heard on our sister stations, Faith Talk 570 and 910 in the greater Tampa area. Bill, thank you so much for taking time uh, out of, I'm sure, your, your preparation efforts to, uh, to uh, join us tonight and give us a bit of a perspective here. I, I think from California's viewpoint outside of 
of fires and earthquakes, there's very little that we have in comparison to the sheer force and and power of something like a Category 5 hurricane. What are things like there right now, and how are most people getting prepared for this? Well, Brother Craig, good to be with you tonight, and I want to tell you also I've been keeping an eye on that huge fire outside of L.A. and all the fires all the way up to Montana, so you've got your fires and we always keep in mind uh, the fault out there with the earthquakes. But, uh, yeah, we uh, we Floridians now have been battening down the hatches, probably started on Labor Day, uh, but have been uh, pretty, uh, pretty strong at it. In fact, even up here in the Bay Area, we are about 1,000 miles away from where uh, Irma is currently positioned just off the, the northern coast of Puerto Rico. I can tell you that um, uh, up until... Harvey went in. Uh, many of us have uh, been on the air uh, through the years. We've gone through 10 plus years of not having a major storm, worried about the fact that we've had several people, uh, hundreds and thousands of people have moved to Florida in the last 10 years who've never experienced a hurricane. We were worried about apathy. Well, Greg, I can tell you that what we have watched uh, the nightmare out of Houston uh, with what's happened with Harvey People here were ready to get ready. This is a big storm. It's a killer storm. I was born and raised here in Florida. I've been through every hurricane. Um, this one, by the grace of God, uh, it has bypassed, uh, are going to bypass some population centers, but pray tonight for Baruba, uh, part of Antigua. Uh, we think that that has been just about wiped off the map, 90%. This is a killer storm. Uh, earlier today, not only did we have our Hurricane Hunter planes that are based, uh, at least the NOAA planes are based right here in Lakeland outside of Tampa, they went in incredible footage uh, flying in sustained winds of 185, 190, gusts up to 225. Uh, this, uh, we, we had a, a record storm with Harvey in terms of rainfall. This is going to be a record storm in, in terms of uh, velocity. So we are taking it very serious here in Florida. Folks uh, down in the Keys are already evacuating because they're only about 18 feet above water. So the storm surge could really do a number on them. What, what is your what is your we're sense? To see the, go ahead. What is your sense, Bill, in terms of the, what the potential damage could be? I mean, we've watched from afar the aftermath of hurricanes like Andrew, Sandy, Katrina, most recently, certainly down in Texas, uh, Harvey. But when I hear things like sustained winds of 185 miles an hour with guess, gusts up to 225 as a Category 5, hurricane. This seems to me that this is kind of the mother of all hurricanes that roll through, uh, certainly in this century. Yeah, let's talk about impact. First of all, you're, when, you're, when you're worried about the maximum sustained winds and whatever the category of a hurricane is, those are the winds right around the core. This has a dangerous core. Now, there are different sizes with hurricanes. Let me give you a couple metrics, and then I'll tell you how it will affect us on the ground. This core is about 50 miles across from the center. That means you've got the center, once the eye moves in, total calm, but the eye wall coming in, the eye wall coming out, stretching out 50 miles, you're going to get absolutely whacked. That's where the highest winds are. But remember that the tropical storm force winds, this is a big storm in terms of size. It is 185 miles wide in terms of the tropical storm winds. Now, imagine that most of Florida 
We're on a peninsula, that little thing that comes all the way down southern states. Uh, we're about 100 miles wide. So you can see that even no matter where the storm tracks, even if it goes up the east coast, mirrors the coast, we're still going to have at least tropical storm impacts throughout the whole peninsula. So we're all preparing. Now, here's the damage. Um, category 1 up to Category 2, if you've got a relative, I'm going to talk about manufactured housing. We're very big into mobile homes here. Huge retirement communities have got come to Florida. Um, they can kind of sometimes go through a Cat 2. This storm is projected to be uh, uh, Cat 4 all the way up as it comes through Florida. I can tell you Category 3 or 4, most of your mobile homes that are in those areas of winds, they're going to be totally destroyed. So we are looking at the potential of uh, catastrophic damage. But the main thing for your audience, if you would pray for us, is um, most of the spaghetti models have this thing turning. And, in fact, uh, uh, for your particular purposes, at about 11 o'clock Sunday, uh, your time, 2 p.m. here on the East Coast, right now the current model shows the eye directly over Miami and Miami Beach. Wow. Um, and so... Later on, uh, on on Monday, 11 o'clock your time, uh, 2 o'clock our time in the afternoon, it is just north of Jacksonville. Now, you're looking at a very abrupt turn to the right. Almost a 90-degree turn is what we're banking on. When you look at the overall cone, the cone to the left side takes us all the way over to Fort Walton toward Pensacola. Even though... Most of this, in fact, I was telling our audience from yesterday, our spaghetti models were, were showing it much quicker than the National Weather Service was willing to move it over because they really have kept it conservatively in the middle of the state because they need the keys to evacuate, which they started today. You've got the uh, overseas highway. Once it's time to evacuate, uh, you're, you're in a parking lot. And keep in mind, the Keys are only 18 feet above sea level, so if we were to get a storm with a 20-foot 20, 20 uh, storm surge, that's the problem. So that's what we're looking at. The other thing I might tell you is a um, little education on a hurricane. A hurricane uh, goes counterclockwise with the winds. So you'll hear this a lot uh, when a hurricane is coming in. Let, let's, say, let's say this model is accurate. It's going to go just north of... Uh, Hispaniola, praise God if it does that. We're going to miss the Dominican and especially Haiti. It's going to continue to track northern off the coast of Cuba, and it gets uh, almost to, to, to the point of Havana, and then all the models say it takes uh, a 90-degree turn up and along the coast. Well, for us here in the western part of the state, we're somewhat encouraged by that, but you can't trust this. So I can tell you, Craig, that everyone in florida we're going to be waiting for and by the way that turn is supposed to happen about two o'clock saturday which is 11 o'clock your time on a current track we're going to be waiting and praying that that storm turns at least from our point over here that the, it turns at the point they say it's going to turn because if it goes another 50 or 100 miles that now you're looking at tampa tampa bay could get the direct hit last thing i'll tell you is Two things we're watching when you ask about damage. First of all, with counterclockwise winds, if it goes up the east coast of Florida, keep in mind the whole time it's going up, 
It is bringing in ocean water, and by the way, it's going over the warmest water, that's the Gulf Stream, and remember a hurricane is nothing but a heat generator, so this thing's going to be pumped up just like Harvey was, but as this thing inches up the Florida coast, if it does stay on the east coast, Craig, all it's doing is throwing water ahead of its path in that counterclockwise rain, so we're going to have flooding all up and down with storm surge. We're going to have tremendous beach erosion if it stays on this particular track. So I can tell you that the catastrophic damage in terms of dollars of, of flooded out buildings, uh, as well as beach erosion and Florida tourism, all of that is uh, on the line as we're watching this particular uh, a storm plot that we have right now from the Hurricane Center in Miami. We've heard reports, Bill, even early on before it's made landfall, that the governor of North Carolina has already declared a state of emergency in anticipation of that hurricane turning and wreaking havoc in that part of the country. What is your sense, as you have listened to the experts, the National Weather Service and uh, whatnot, um, give a sense of what to anticipate uh, in terms of how catastrophic it potentially could be on Miami and potentially further north, as you suggest, if it continues to hug the coast there and make its way into Tampa? Are we talking about something that will shadow the devastation of Katrina, Sandy, or even Harvey? Well, the main thing is, is go back in your archives to Hurricane Andrew. Uh, Hurricane Andrew came straight in, and in fact, uh, it was scheduled to go into Miami. It actually ended up taking a turn at the last minute, went into Homestead. Absolute devastation. Let me just be very clear. Uh, yesterday or the day before, the president uh, had, had already declared Florida. We are, oh, we've been under an emergency order a federal order for a day, day day or two days. I know that South Carolina has requested the president to uh, issue an emergency order for his state. Um, he can do his own, like Governor Scott did here. I don't know if North Carolina, I can't verify whether that was their emergency or their request. Yes, they need, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina all need to be also issued emergency pre-orders that allows FEMA and all of the pre-positioning. We've been working with folks uh, pre-positioning here over on the other coast. But make no mistake about it, Craig, if this were to hold true, it is uh, slated to be a Category 4 hurricane as it comes right into Miami. If that's the case, you can look at, uh, you know, 25 miles uh, to the left of the eye with a 50-mile radius, it's going to mow everything down. Then you'll have the next layer of stronger winds, which takes it uh, at that point to almost uh, easily across. Because you look at the peninsula of Florida, it comes down sort of at an angle uh, into it, into itself. We're looking at catastrophic damage. And so, as I told my audience today, very delicate how we've been praying for it. Because selfishly, here in Tampa, we're on the west coast. We're encouraged by the current track, but as, as I was praying on air with our audience this afternoon, uh, I'm very careful not to pray for somebody else to be in the, in, in the track of the storm that we miss. And if we continue in Floridians to pray for it to get off the coast of Florida, then we put Freeport and more of the Bahama chain. So we're just, uh, we've just been praying for God's will and praying that for the less uh, amount of impact to people, 
and humanity, uh, and I pray for this thing to defy logic and to go into that Bermuda, Bermuda High and just go off the Atlantic, but we are very concerned. I've been here all of my life. I've been through every Florida hurricane. I was uh, I flew over uh, Hurricane Andrew damage a day and a half after that storm. It was frightening. This thing, the governor has already told everybody in the state, this is much bigger and better than Hurricane Andrew. So that trumps uh, Harvey and all the rest of what you're looking at. This is a killer storm. Well, Bill, uh, I know it's not comforting, but to say that we certainly here in California will be praying for all of you Floridians and what you're going to be facing over the next several days. Uh, Again, if you've just joined us, Bill Bunkley is with us. Bill is the host of the Bill Bunkley Show on our sister stations down in the Tampa area. Um, There are anticipations at this point um, as Hurricane is now making its way about 50 miles north of Puerto Rico. Then uh, it will continue on Thursday through uh, just north of the Dominican Republic and Haiti. The Bahamas on Friday, it's anticipated sometime Sunday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday making landfall as to exactly where uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. And at this point, uh, I would urge listeners here in California... Whether or not you've got friends and relatives in Florida to be praying for the state of Florida, we've watched the horror of the aftermath of the way people are suffering down in the Houston area. This looks like potentially, if it wreaks the havoc that it has the power to wreak, um, it could make uh, even the devastation of Harvey look mild in comparison. So, um, Bill, our prayers with all of you there in Florida, and uh, we hope to hope touch bases with you next week and hear good news that this thing just kind of suddenly lost steam and went off uh, north uh, east and that was the end of it and uh, you know at the end of the day we just have to trust the lord uh, to protect all the people there in florida bill bunkley with our sister station faith talk 570 and 910 out of tampa all right just about 10 away from the hour let's get you a quick update on traffic head back over to the kfax traffic center we're a bit late but that's okay you're stuck in traffic you're probably a little bit late too get the latest now with michael bennett michael and now back to lifeline with craig roberts you know when you think about your relationship with others So much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God Shaped Brain. Now Dr. Tim Jennings is a board certified Christian psychiatrist and master psycho pharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of 
just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science, brain science, is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible, rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of, uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things, and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, you know, the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. So you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and, uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, uh, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to be this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God uh, based on maybe the the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God. You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator, who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and 
things changed, and you, you can see that history where the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to impose rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that, that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our, our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely, and what's, uh, what's uh, striking is that m- most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, uh, somebody in a Wiccan camp wor- worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking, though, is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed him, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and, and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak? Uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. Well, I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I... Um, was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have, down on those who do look on God as somehow being, un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way. And so they really challenged us, and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept. And uh, these ideas were very challenging for me, and I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's Word and not have to simply say, well, I believe, and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the, um, in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of, of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, et cetera, et cetera, find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint uh, on God and on life and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love 
who is self-sacrificial, beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I've had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault, because when she was an adolescent, she'd gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors. And this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chron- chronic fear and anxiety going, whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the interesting of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong. And it doesn't go your way, and it doesn't feel good, and you just don't, you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. I wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life, written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.